Good morning. How is everyone on this fine day? Lights are bright. I told them earlier I always prefer bright lights when I'm up here because then I can't see anybody. So if anyone has a flashlight, you can just shine it right in my face. I, it wouldn't bother me at all. That's not up there. Jonathan, we got the slide, and there it is. It's a little bit smaller than I had hoped, but anyway. Uh, one of my favorite lines from a movie is from Alice in Wonderland with the March Hare and the Mad Hatter. Uh, when they're talking to Alice at the table in their crazy thing that's going on there, their tea party. And uh, they say... Start at the beginning, and when you get to the end, stop. So it makes sense that first time I'm up here talking, without it being a testimony, I would just start in Genesis. Because uh, it all starts with Genesis. So the definition of Genesis here is origin or, or mode of formation of something. Synonyms would be origin, source, beginning, formation, emergence, birth, creation, etc. It goes on. First book in the Bible, if you didn't know that. Uh, it's actually the first of the first five books in the Bible, which is called the Pentateuch, which means five books. And they were all written by Moses. So it's just some fun facts here. Uh, Genesis covers the first 2,200 years or so of existence of the world from Adam to Abram, or Abraham. Um, the whole rest of the Bible covers the next 1,800 years. So the first chunk of Genesis, actually Genesis 1 through 11, covers the first 2,000, 2,200 years or so of, of the existence of man. Um, from the last writings of the Bible to the present, it counts for another 2,000 years or so. So from a creationist standpoint, this puts the age of the universe at approximately 6,000 years. You can quibble and argue this till you're blue in the face. Lots of people like to. Um, I like to think that God can do anything. So, I am a young earth creationist. That's what they call us, or they just call us stupid. But uh, I prefer the first one. Uh, the first 11 chapters, as well as the whole of the book of Job, cover the first 1,900 years or so. So Job, chronologically, uh, is, is seated right between Genesis 10 and 11. So Job is actually a story that predates um, the flood, even though it's right in the middle of the, New Test or the Old Testament, pretty much. Um, which is right there after the story of Noah's sons, after the flood. And... Um, before the story of the Tower of Babel. Um, another wonderful thing that Genesis should bring to mind is this. <laughs> there we go. One of the best video game systems of all time and one of the greatest musicians ever, the Sega Genesis and Phil Collins. So, you can tell I'm an 80s slash 90s kid. So this is actually a piece of paper that I wrote on, I don't know, 20 years ago or something. I still have it. 
So I took a little picture of it, office lensed it, made it look nice and documenty. Uh, basically, one time when I was younger, I sat down and I tried to figure out some of the genealogies in Genesis and tried to kind of pin down some dates. I brought this in here at this point in time because I wanted to show the preciseness and the exactness of the Lord and how he does things. If you go down the genealogy starting with Adam there at 130 years when he bore Seth, you keep on going all the way down to the flood. That's where it's circled right there in uh, right here. So 1,656 years is the estimated amount of time that it took from creation to the flood. If you take Methuselah, who we know lived 969 years, uh, he was born 687 years in, add that up, 969 equals the exact time uh, and date of the flood. So either that dude died right before the flood or he died in the flood, but the numbers add up, and they are exact and precise down to the year of when the flood took place. Always found that interesting. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> it's a good number to have, though, I'm sure. Um, so why is this important? Why are all these facts and Things important here. Um, it's important to go back to the New Testament because it lays the foundation. Uh, every New Testament author, as well as Jesus himself, quotes or alludes to Genesis. There are 60 allusions to Genesis 1 through 11 alone, 103 allusions to the whole book. Uh, most allusions presume Genesis as a historical document. There's lots of people that go back and forth. Is it poetry? Is it prose? Is it this, that, or the other thing, I like to think it's historical. It has tidbits of all of those things in it, but I really do believe that it was uh, a God-breathed word given to Moses and was written as, as a record of sorts of what truly did happen. Um, it's important, too, because there's many other creation accounts as well as accounts of the global flood um, in all sorts of uh, cultures uh, the Bible stands out as an account, as a monotheistic creator who created everything out of nothing and then had a loving relationship with his creation. That's super important because a lot of the other stories have to do with gods and chaos, uh, battling and all these things. Things are out of control. This is a story that's very poignant and very to the point and very, this is how it happened. It was very orderly. It was very in place. God was very in control and it stands out among those other stories, is something unique, especially the fact of the relationship between God and human beings uh, being founded in love. Um, foundations are of utmost importance if we look at Luke 6.48. The Bible says, He is like a man building a house who dug deep. There's two versions of this. The other one's in Mark, I believe. But I like this this uh, recalling of this, uh, of this uh, parable better uh, because it speaks of digging deep and digging down to the, there's work involved there. There's, there's time and effort and sweat and uh, things that go into this. He's kind of building this picture here. Who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. 
And then it go, Jesus goes on to talk about a house that's just built on the ground, that's just lazily put up and has no hope when the torrents come, come at it because there is no foundation. It's not down to the bedrock. It's also important to understand where we truly come from because it not only gives us a goal as to where we need to go, it also gives us a framework of how to get there. And most importantly, the story of Jesus starts in Genesis. Believe it or not, Jesus can be seen in every book of the Bible. So Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Elohim is the word used here for God. Hebrew word it is basically a plural of majesty, but it's singular at the same time. Um, I think if you look into that more, you can actually see masculine and feminine going on at the same time in that word. Um, and the fact that it's followed by the singular creative in this first sentence of the scriptures, um, basically, from the onset of scripture, God is nudging us in the direction of his triune nature. He's kind of coming out and saying, hey, I'm a pretty intense being. Um, I'm a pretty complicated being. I am one, but I'm three at the same time. And we see that um, in our nature, in our, in our creation, mind, body, spirits. Uh, uh, even go into some psychology, and Freud talk about the id, ego, and superego. There seems to be, there was even more when he went on with that, but there were three basic um, sections of, of uh, the human psyche. So, we see that pattern over and over again, and that number three is all over the place in Scripture. And it's extremely important. Heavens and earth here means everything. So this is the beginning of everything with nothing in creation existing before this point in history. Um, a lot of things hinge on this, and we're not going to go into everything today because we don't have the time. And honestly, it's a pretty vast subject. But... Um, it's very interesting how God set this up so that even with the vast amounts of, um, of data that we have and of uh, proof of God, it still takes faith. Because faith is what pleases him. There's, a, there's kind of a duality in that. There's a lot of dualities in scripture uh, Genesis 1-4, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. The first mention of light and darkness is a theme that continues throughout the entire Bible, continues with uh, polarized things after this. Uh, waters above and below, day and night, morning, evening, greater and lesser light, water and dry land. Genesis 1, 9 through 10, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. And let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the word Pangea. But it happens to be an island where evolutionists and creationists can vacation together on. Because the Bible basically says the same thing that evolutionists think they came up with on their own. There's a single mass of land that um, we both agree on that existed at the beginning. 
which is a, basically just a huge island called Pangaea. Um, continental shifts took place, and before long, the continents broke apart and into the present-day formation that we have. You can see how they all fit together, and it all makes sense. And the Bible said this way before we figured this out. You find that a lot in the Bible. There's a lot of, of, of discoveries that we made that were actually mentioned in the Bible thousands of years before we made said discoveries. Genesis 1, 26 uh, through 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our own image and after our own likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. Um, and the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. This is yet another allusion to the triune nature of God. The second and the very first chapter of the first book of the Bible. We are also set apart from other biological creatures created. We alone bear the image of God, and we are given authority over the whole of creation to care for and not to exploit it. Mark 12, 16 through 17 says, They brought the coin, and he asked them, Jesus did, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. The fact that we are created in the image of God gives us intrinsic value. Looking at Jesus' allusions to Genesis 1.27 in Mark 12, Jesus not only alludes to Genesis, but also reinstates the importance of the fact that we belong to God because we do indeed bear his image. He was saying they were arguing about paying taxes. And Jesus was like, oh my goodness, give me a coin. And he get, he, they brought him the coin. He's like, whose image is on the coin? Like Caesar's. Okay, then give it to Caesar's. Whose image is on you? That's what he was saying. This is huge because before money, education, success, societal status, and other temporary things that we use to place value on fellow humans, we were given the image of God, the breath of life in Genesis 2-7, and we were entrusted with the governance of the paradise God had just created. Bringing the first chapter of Genesis to a close, God states, and God saw everything that he has made, and behold, it was very good. Genesis 1.31. So this is super important to understand where we came from, because if you don't have this intrinsic value of the image of God built into you, into your understanding of yourself and understanding of other people, you really don't have that foundation that you need to live your life correctly, or to treat others the way that they should be treated. And we see that everywhere. And it really is a shame because it's caused atrocities. When we think that we came from something that we didn't come from, it removes that worth and that value that's built into us from the get-go. So, going on here, Genesis 2, I'm kind of... Kind of uh, Stumbling over the next couple of chapters here uh, to get to my main point. Um, I'll come back to this in depth. I was, kinda, I was talking to the Lord um, about how he wanted me to attack this because I've never had to speak 
on a schedule before. I've only had to do it every you know, couple times a year, and that's almost kind of easy because you have a lot to pull from um, for 30 minutes of talking. So um, I figured that perhaps a chronological um, um, look at the, at the word is, is uh, something that I'm going to go for here. So I'm going to come back to these chapters and kind of go and delve into them more because there's a ton of stuff in here. In just these first three chapters of the Bible, there's, there's so much here. You can talk for weeks on this. Um, but Genesis 2 is a shorter chapter for, focusing on God's rest, the creation of Adam and Eve. So it kind of goes back to the creation story found in one and kind of focuses right in on Adam and Eve, the Garden of Eden in which they lived. So we basically got two good chapters here in the Bible. And uh, right at the beginning of chapter 3, everything falls apart. So um, the end of chapter 2 ends with the fact that Adam and Eve were living in perfect paradise naked and without shame. So, if we look at what Jesus actually did for us on the cross, um, restoring us to the Father and to that image of the, of the Father, which we'll get back, to, we'll get to here in a minute. It's almost kind of, so, so why, because I feel plenty of shame when I don't have any clothes on. So, I, I, maybe it's because I eat too much pizza. But, um, there's still that, that flesh thing that's there. There's still that flesh thing that we have to flesh out. And it's a continual process um, of relationship with the Lord, of being rooted in his word and in him and continuing that. So uh, when Jesus died on the cross, there was a, a, uh, a fulfillment of, of bringing that spiritual aspect um, and, and uh, reuniting that with the Lord but yet we have this whole physical issue that we have to deal with through our lives and you know, struggles with, with sin and, and, and we still die and things of that nature. So there will be a day when the culmination of what Jesus did on the cross will be completely fulfilled in perfect paradise and we will be given new bodies and things like that. But in, in the meantime, we still have some things we have to deal with. So chapter 3 introduces the story of the fall and begins the roller coaster that has brought us to where we are now. The very first prophecy in scripture occurs here. In Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. This points directly to Jesus and the defeat of sin, death, and Satan on the cross. God provides restoration the moment that it is needed. Verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. So that's actually a sentence and the structure of that sentence in the original text, points to the fact that he just kind of cut himself off. Like he didn't even want to finish the idea or the statement. So the statement that God doesn't even finish, he cuts it off what he was saying and goes directly to banishing man from the garden because the idea of man continuing in this state that he has now found himself in forever 
is completely abhorrent to the Lord. Like he can't even finish what he was saying. He's just like, we're going we're gonna to work this out, but you've got to go for now. So death entered the world. God's answer is to renew the distorted image we now find ourselves born into by giving us a rebirth in Jesus Christ. John 3.3, 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Colossians 3.9-10 says, Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So there is a, an ongoing process. I know the New Testament talks also about how we, we still see dimly as in a mirror, but when everything is said and done, we will see clearly. And Sometimes that, that causes struggles and frustrations, um, especially depending on uh, the branch of the church that you uh, belong to. Um, so, there are estimates. We just talked about the very first prophecy in the scriptures and the fact that it points directly to Jesus. There are estimates of the number of Old Testament prophecies that Jesus actually fulfilled. They were fulfilled in him and by him. And the estimate lies somewhere between three and four hundred prophecies. So this is where we get a little nerdy with the numbers. The oldest prophecy being spoken by God himself about 2,000 years before the uh, crucifixion. That alone is amazing. Uh, something that's spoken about someone 2,000 years before it happens. And it is dead on. Directly dead on. Lee Strobel he is an attorney, I believe, and an author. He was an atheist turned Christian, performed some calculations to try to figure out what this would look like in real life. Lee notes, I imagine the entire world being covered with white tile that was one and one-half inches square. It's like small, small tile, like bathroom tile type stuff. Shower tile. Every bit of dry land on the planet, with the bottom of just one of those tiles painted red. Then I pictured a person being allowed to wander for a lifetime around all seven continents. He would be permitted to bend down only once in that entire lifetime and pick up a piece of tile. What are the odds that it would be the one tile whose reverse side was painted red? The odds would be the same if just eight of the Old Testament prophecies coming true in any one person throughout entire history. Just eight of them. Uh, Peter Stoner is a professor of mathematics and science. Uh, he concluded that Jesus fulfilling over eight of the over 300 Old Testament prophecies would be one in 10 to the 17th power. Pretty big number. This is where the ever-popular silver dollars over Texas analogy comes in. Where he says in one of his 
his writings, and I think he has a book of his, says, imagine having uh, enough silver dollars to cover the entire, entire state of Texas two feet deep with coins, with silver dollars, and having one of them have an inscription on it, sending someone blindfolded across the, the, the state and uh, letting them bend down and pick up that exact coin. Like, that's, that's the probability of, of just eight of the hundreds of prophecies that Jesus fulfilled coming true in one man. So if you double that number from 8 to 16, 8 prophecies to 16 prophecies coming true in just one man, Jesus Christ, the odds jump from 1 in 10 to the 17th power to 1 in 10 to the 45th power. If we keep going, even to just 48 of the 300 plus prophecies that were fulfilled directly by Jesus Christ, which were written hundreds, if not millennia, before Jesus was born, uh, the odds jump to 1 in 10 to the 157th power, which is an insanely large number. Most recent estimates of how many atoms are in the observable universe is 10 to the 80th power. So that gives you an idea. That kind of gives you an idea about how serious this whole thing is. Because atoms are tiny and there's lots of them. The most abundant of those are hydrogen. If you go smaller, even to the estimate of some subatomic particles uh, in the observable universe, we get 10 to the 97th power, so it doesn't even hit a Google, which we all know Google, the website, is basically, it's based off this, this, this number here, which is 10 to the 100th, 100th power. And funny enough, they call their headquarters a Googleplex, which is a Google to the power of a Google. So it's 10 to 100 times 10 to 100. So it's, it's a number that I guess they say that can't even really be written. Um, so you can see that number right there. That's a ghoul. So we're talking about even just 48 of those prophecies, 10 to the 157th power bigger than a Google, which is an insanely large number. Um, and when you go into numbers higher than that, it's really just theory. That's what they're talking about. Because, as you can see, uh, in the observable universe, we kind of max ourselves out right about here. So based on this, I posit that the most abundant thing in the universe is not even creation itself. It's just the truth that Jesus is who he said he is. Because I can't math well enough to figure out the odds of fulfilling over 300 prophecies. Like, just a percentage of those prophecies takes you to a number that's bigger than the amount of things that exist in the universe as far as that goes. So truly the Lord has done great and wonderful things. These are things that we can base our existence on we can base our day today on, we can look at this from an objective point of view and we can lay it all out in front of us and we can reason that Romans 1 is correct. When the Lord says that just looking at creation, you know that I exist. And it takes a lot to say that I don't. 
takes one thing to say that I do, though, and that's faith. And that's something that only the Lord can give to us. So, with all this information and all these facts and statistics, the point of this whole thing here is to understand how precious we are and how much the Lord has gone through to bring him back to us, us back to him. We are the most important thing to him. We are his bride. We are his beloved. We are his people. We are the ones that he wants to live with forever in a remade creation, in a remade Eden that never ends. So how ought we to live if this is the truth? This gives us wisdom. This gives us understanding. Knowing where we came from, knowing where we're going, helps us to make those decisions about work, about play, about relationships, about rest, about all those little things that come into play in our everyday that seem to overwhelm us and take over the truth. So, we can rest assured in the fact that Jesus is who he said he is and that he has done what he said he has done and he's going to do what he said he's going to do. Lord, we love you. Lord, we ask right now that you would open us up to the truth. Lord, we ask that you would fill us with the truth. Help us to stay rooted in you and your word in relationship with you, with your precious Holy Spirit. Help us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt the facts that you are who you said you were. You are who you are and you will always be him, the great I am. Please help us, Lord God, to base our entire existence on this. Lord, to make our every decision based on you, who you've called us to be, how you've called us to live in righteousness and holiness and peace with everyone as far as it concerns us. Help us to be filled with love for one another, for the lost, for those who come against us, because they still bear your image. We all do. Lord, and we pray, Lord God, as we go forward, that this distorted image that we've fallen into, Lord God, just be completely reversed by the blood shed on the cross and your resurrection and your defeat of death and the enemy. And we love you, Lord. Help us to love you with everything we've got and to love our neighbors as ourselves and to know that we were created with a purpose all about you. In the name of Jesus.